Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to New Books in Film. I am your host, Joel Cherney. We are all familiar with the film studio, 20th Century Fox, and all its various media enterprises, but few remember the person who founded Fox Studios. In her book, The Man Who Made the Movies, The Meteoric Rise and Tragic Fall of William Fox, Vanda Kreft presents a portrait of one of the founders of the Hollywood film industry, whose success was ruined through a variety of missteps that destroyed his life. Welcome, Vanda Kreft. Hi, Vanda. Thanks for talking with me. Hi, hi, Joel. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me on the show. I actually saw an interview with you. In fact, that's sort of this is what sort of got me in to pay attention to this book on C-SPAN 3, which is the American History mm-hmm. Channel on the weekends. And there's an interview with you, recent interview, and they actually, a couple weeks ago is when I first saw it, and then they, they've been showing it off and on again. So uh, it's that's how I, I think the book hit got to me. I usually, a lot of the interviews I do are, are academic publishers, but I, your book is actually published, you know, as a popular uh, publisher. So that's even better as far as I'm concerned, because it's great that a publisher is willing to, to, to publish a book of this magnitude as far as the size and, and the depth. And I think I knew in the back of my mind that there was an actual Fox of 20th Century Fox. But your book details the life of William Fox, who has largely been ignored in film history. But let's start with your background so you can get a, mm-hmm. give, give us a chance to learn about you. What are your educational and writing experiences? Yes. Okay. Well, I started off, uh, well, in college, I was an English major. I went to the University of Pennsylvania. And uh, then from there, you know, there's not much you can do with an English degree. So I became a 
writer, a journalist, and I worked for initially for a newspaper in northern New Jersey, the Bergen Record, and then came to California and worked as a magazine journalist, largely covering the motion picture industry, doing celebrity interviews and that sort of thing for on a freelance basis for a number of magazines. And so that gave me some familiarity with the industry and the way that it works. Of course, it was always very much focused on what's coming next, who's got a movie coming out, and what are they going to promote. But in the course of that work, I met another freelance journalist, Angela Fox Dunn, who was William Fox's niece. And so that was my first introduction to William Fox. And this is your first book, am I correct on that? Yes, that's correct. So was it just a matter of meeting her that suddenly got you interested, or were you already interested in the early parts of the film industry? Because obviously William Fox um, was there at the beginning, so to speak, of, of, of the, you know, the Hollywood studio system. Yes. I would say it was a number of factors. Um, certainly meeting and becoming friends with Angela because we became very close friends. She was really a wonderful person. She passed away about uh, 10 years ago, but she was one of those unique characters who was filled with many stories about Uncle Bill because she actually knew him. And so, so that really focused my interest and attention on him. But what you mentioned before is certainly true. I was always interested in the history of the industry, and I was always interested in doing in-depth research. I found that one of the things that was frustrating about the magazine world was that you had to churn out articles on a you know pretty quick basis, and you really couldn't delve into very much background research because it simply wasn't cost-effective. You had to move on to the next paid assignment. So I think I was always really yearning to do a longer project. And then I, I just found I was a little bit burned out on magazine writing and not really sure where to go for a next direction. I decided, well, I'll, I'll go back to school and get a master's degree. And I went back to the University of Pennsylvania to the Annenberg School, which was really a wonderful, wonderful place. Um, got a master's in communication there, and in the process of that, had to do a thesis. And so that's where I, it really confirmed this desire, this urge that I had to do in-depth research. And so when I finished that, I thought, okay, what I, what I really want to do is to write a book. And so that combined with, well, what am I going to write a book about? And then thinking of William Fox, that's really how this project came about. I thought, oh, he's never been done. So why don't I do him? What was your thesis topic, if you don't mind me asking? It was um, not a particularly good thesis. It was Hollywood in the Internet Age. And that was, I was in graduate school from 99 to 01. So it was really just at the time when Hollywood was confronting the invasion of this technology and not really sure what it was going to do with it. And so nobody really knew. And that was why I don't think it was really such a great thesis is because when I, w I went out and interviewed a number of people, and basically what they said is, we don't know. It'll probably be a delivery channel, and it probably really won't change content very much, but what it will change is the way that people uh, receive the content. And I think that was true, but it just wasn't a terribly 
uh, rich subject, I think, because not enough was known at that time. Well, wasn't, I think it was William Goldman in his, in, in his adventures in screenwriting who said the one thing about Hollywood is no one knows anything or nobody knows yeah. anything. And I think, <laughs> I right. think you, you, mm-hmm. you, predictions are, are a tough thing in any industry, but definitely I think nobody knows what's suddenly going to be popular half the time. So it's not a surprise that they weren't sure. You know, Nobody knew what the internet was going to be like even back then. So mm-hmm. it's not a big mm-hmm. surprise that uh, that's the kind of answers you got. But it had means yeah. to an end, as, it, as as the saying goes, with research projects for education. Right. So that's good. Right. So how right. long have mm-hmm. you been working on this project? As I mentioned before, the book is big. It's like 965 pages, and I don't want people to be scared off by it. It's 965 good pages. But um, yeah, well, well, thank you. But if I may interject here, it's really only 750 some pages oh, of okay. actual text. The rest of that are endnotes. So maybe that'll be a little less scary well, to readers. It's not nothing to be scary about it. It it really flows. Yeah greatly so great so i don't oh, think that's you. an issue and i think people are we're looking for an in-depth like this um people are always looking film people i think so but mm-hmm. how long have you been working on the project well what i will admit to is 10 plus years <laughs> it's probably a little bit more like 12 years but um much longer than i anticipated expected or probably would have signed on for had i known that in the beginning but it was just such a, a uh, an information rich project and every time i thought i knew something i found out i really didn't know that and it was not the way that i thought it was so then i had to dig more and find out well what is it that actually happened and those kinds of questions and discoveries were what really kept me going throughout the, all that time, and which really kept the book, for me, very fresh and very interesting. I, I have to say, I never got bored with it. I never disliked Fox. I always thought he was a fascinating character, and I always thought that there was really more to discover about him. So I, I really would have to say that every day on this was really interesting and really exciting for me. So, obviously... You had a number of different types of sources that you had to have used to put this together, as obviously, as you indicated, there's 200-some pages of endnotes. So mm-hmm. <laughs> obviously, <Yes. laughs> there's a lot of information that you had to, to go through to, to, to put this together. But what were some of the sources you used in order to – what kind of materials, not only how you found them, but the types of materials that you were able to use for this? Yeah, it was really a very diverse range. Um, I was limited in the number of people that I could interview because most people, really actually virtually everybody, you know, has passed away. Um, my friend Angela, who had known him, she was full of a number of really great stories and, and a lot of up-close perspective on who he was as a person and um, how the whole, how his whole experience impacted him. So she was a really important piece of the puzzle. Unfortunately, there was no central archive of Fox material, of William Fox material. There was no collection of personal papers. The studio had really nothing of of significant interest from his era. I mean, they did have some documents, but there was none of his personal correspondence in their files. They seemed to have just tossed everything away. So that was that was a limited source where I had expected there to be quite a lot of material, which meant, okay, now I had to get, you know, creative and do a lot of detective work as to where information would be. 
and it was really very, very widely scattered. Um, there were, uh, for instance, in South Carolina, there's a collection of uh, the early the Fox movie tone news, uh, the silent version, and there's a bit of film of not very much, but a bit of film of Fox himself. So that was good to go and see. Then I was fortunate enough to get a fellowship at the Leon Levy Center for Biography in New York, which was eight months. And Fox had always lived in New York. So there was, um, well, again, there were no personal papers. One source that turned out to be unexpectedly rich were legal uh, lawsuit uh, files, which fortunately the government keeps. And Fox loved to sue people, and people loved to sue him. And I again, I thought that was going to be really dry, dull legal information. But what I found was that in the depositions and in supporting documents, people had to go into depth about how they met each other, what their relationships were like. And there was a lot of really interesting information there that was very helpful that was nowhere else because and a lot of this information would be in contrast to what was put out in press releases so here you would find what they really thought of each other um you could also find very practical information uh, such as where where exactly somebody's offices were or what their home address was um that kind of thing which is very helpful in charting somebody's progress through time uh, then I also looked at, I also thought, okay, well, Fox may not have left, himself have left a collection of papers, but certainly he knew and worked with a number of, quite a number of other famous people. So I would go to their archives and look at their personal papers and look for their reflections and their accounts of what it was like to work with Fox. I know that uh, having gotten my own master's in history, actually I've got one in library science too, but that one I didn't have to do as much research for the library science one. But having done history research, I know that it's sometimes you come up with a, a research source and you'd think, as you just pointed out, you would think, well, I don't know how much you're going to get out of that. But then surprisingly, um, you find sources sometimes that are rich as far as the kind of material it is and, and the amount of research yeah. you have to do almost for any project. But I can only imagine how much you ended up, how much your final research ended up being as far as just how much you went through and, and how much you collected in order to put something like this together. So uh, mm -hmm. that, did you already, when, as you were doing this research, was the book always pretty much in mind that that's where you were aiming for? You mean, was it, did the book turn out the way that I thought it was going to in terms of what the story was? Well, more so, did you, it was always a book you had in mind. It was just a matter that uh, you then started doing the research after you decided, yes, this is what I was going to write about. And because mm -hmm. you had said at the beginning that, that, that you, after you finished everything else as far as education, you said you wanted to write a book. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Sorry. I was there. No, I guess my question well, was, okay. as you were doing all this research, and don't worry, I'll clean up all of this. So okay, it won't sound thanks. like we're both <laughs> going, what, what, what? Anyway, yeah. um, you're, you're, as you were doing this research, you already mm -hmm. knew in your mind that it was a book that you were trying to put together, right? 
Oh, yes, correct. Yes, correct. Um, I did initially, I wrote the proposal, and but the proposal anticipated a different kind of story. I thought it was going to be the story of somebody who you know, started off uh, very sort of uh, ambitiously, but honestly, and then who was, became overly ambitious, overreached himself and was responsible for his own downfall. That's what I thought the story was going to be. But when I really dug into the research, I thought there were, I, I discovered that there were a whole lot more gray areas. And when I looked, you know, specifically at the time period where he was losing his companies, which was 1929, 1930, and then in the early 30s, he has a number of other battles, I realized that there was a lot of context information that was really very, very important that I didn't understand. And what I came to see was not so much that he was entirely responsible for his downfall, but that, yes, certainly he did make mistakes, but that he was caught in the web of a quite a corrupt big business conspiracy, which all sort of exploded with the stock market crash and unleashing an even more chaotic environment where these corrupt forces were really able to take advantage of, of his position and throw him out of his prosperous companies. And so I, I had to really, I hadn't anticipated this, but I, in the course of the research, I realized I really had to find out about, well, what's going on on Wall Street? You know, how regulated was it? What was the profile of these companies, these other companies with which he interacted? Um, and not only that, but then later on, he gets into the judicial system, he's, he bribes a federal judge. And uh, again, initially going into the project, I thought, okay, um, you know, that's a bad thing to do. Uh, he's, he's, that's entirely his fault. As I dug into it, what I discovered was, oh, the judicial system, the federal judicial system in the early 1930s was really, really corrupt. And the judge that Fox had bribed, well, he actually solicited the bribe and he had been corrupt for a long time. So there I realized what I was looking at was an environment where Fox was looking at it saying, how do I get justice? And he was looking at it saying, the whole thing is corrupt. The only way you get justice is you buy it. And so he thought he was buying the proper outcome. He didn't think he was perverting justice. He thought he was just simply trying to buy it. So that was another example, along with the Wall Street one, where I really had to, felt I had to dig into a lot of the context information that I didn't understand, that I didn't know about. So that was one of the reasons it took so long. <laughs> well, that's that's what we say. You start your research and then and, and I don't think I've ever talked to a single author who hasn't said that they started their research thinking one thing and then as they did the research, they suddenly found out it wasn't as obvious or as, as, as the way you start. It's what ends up as, as what you discover as part of your research and, and how it changes how, you know, where you're going with what you're trying to, to say. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm glad I'm not alone. <laughs> <laughs> now... 
the book is actually a full biography of him. I mean, you go all the way back to his. He was born in 1879, and he was he was not a, he was not American born. He was born in. You tell me. <laughs> yes, he was born in Tulsa, Hungary, uh, on January 1st, 1879. And then when he was nine months old, his mother brought him to the United States. His father had come some months earlier, settling in the Lower East Side of New York. And so mother brings him, and he was the eldest child. So there was just the two of them making that voyage uh, that, in that, 1879. That is an, a regular way from doing my own personal research, family research. It, it Right around that same time, uh, that's pretty much the way it was. One went ahead and prepared and made sure everything was ready to go, and then the uh, the rest of the family came along, and that's sort of the way it was it was done. So that's not a surprise. But that makes basically, though, if he was that young, then for all intents and purposes, he was an American for his entire life then. Yes, yes. He certainly grew up in the United States. Um, he had no accent other than the Lower East Side accent. Um, but yes, he, he was uh, very much American, and he was very proud of being an American. He was very, very patriotic. So obviously, as we know, or, you know, he fi- he founded a film company, but where did he, you know, where, where did the ambition start for him that that was where he decided where was the area he wanted to, to go into, given that it was obviously he was there right at the beginning. He was one of the, the, the those that were still there that could truthfully say they were there at the beginning. Yes, he certainly was there at the very beginning, um, although he didn't quite realize what he was getting into when uh, when he did enter the entertainment industry. He had actually started off in the clothing business, and he always had a sense, though, as a child, and I think this was really instilled by his mother, that he was going to do something great. And growing up in the late 19th century in New York, I think he had, you know, the culture was one of great optimism and, you know, sense of kind of booming prosperity and that anyone can do it as long as you work hard. There's opportunity here. And he was really, I think, very, you know, filled with that spirit and encouraged by his mother to see himself that way. So he was always sort of restlessly energetic, trying to think of, you know, the next way to make money and really working hard. He had dropped out of school when he was uh, 10 years old and he went just to work in a garment industry factory. So he started off there, and then when he was around uh, 20, I think, he started his own company, his own uh, cloth shrinking company. And that's where he thought he was going to spend his career. But what he discovered was that it just wasn't, there wasn't enough room for growth in, in there. The industry was pretty much established. So he was always looking what do I, you know, what else can I do? And he thought for a little while, okay, maybe I'll go into real estate. And that didn't really work out too well. And then he happened to be walking down 14th Street and he saw an arcade that had a lot of amusement machines in it. And he thought, okay, I'll go in and do that as a side business. That'll be, I've got a little bit of money to invest. I'll start up one of those kind of businesses. And so he rented a uh, storefront in Brooklyn. There were two stories, and he put the arcade machines in at the ground floor. And 
that didn't really work out too well. And so then he thought, well, what am I going to do? How am I going to save this business? And then he remembered that he had seen in Manhattan a showing of a motion picture, you know, just a very, um, you know, a very rough couple of minutes, really just a novelty of a motion picture. But he thought, well, you know, that's kind of fascinating. So he put a projector in and some seats up on the second floor and, Lo and behold, people, after, you know, quite a bit of promotion, people started coming to that. And then he realized that that's where the money was. It was not in the arcade machines, and he got rid of the arcade machines down on the ground floor. So that was his start as an exhibitor. And then he uh, moved into film distribution. And then in 1950, well, in 1914, he started a company called Box Office Attraction, which was a production company. And then that turned into the Box Film Corporation in early 1915. So that that was his background. So truly, as you say, he was there at the very beginning when they used, you know, a bed sheet against the wall and hard folding chairs. And that was a movie for you. So he really, you know, and, and having been exposed to all uh, all aspects, you know, exhibition, distribution, and then production, he really understood all sides of the business. That was actually his story. While obviously he had his own way into it, it's it's it actually is a familiar story if you read about some of the other people who got in on the ground floor, so to speak, that they were doing other things and then suddenly this came along and there's a few people that had the, in this case, understood it enough. You know, we talked about the, you know, uh, nobody knows anything, but in this particular case, mm-hmm. they certainly somehow figured out early on that this was something that, that, that was going to last and was going to become very big. And he was one of those people, it sounds like, who knew that yes. or could figure that out. Mm-hmm. Yes, and and one of the things that was really very impressive about him was his visionary capability. He could see that even something in in its in a very rough rough form, he understood that it was going to be refined and perfected, and he could see where it was going. He could see far beyond the limitations of what the technology was at any particular time, so that. Many people might have looked at the the early those very early years of the motion picture industry and said, "Well, it's just really lower class entertainment, and it's a passing fad." Fox could look at it and see, no, you know, this will appeal to it will eventually appeal to the middle class and even the upper classes. And so he could see where it was going, and he very much wanted to be a part of the industry that would make those improvements and refinements and really uplift this kind of crude technology to an art form. And he always believed that it had that potential to become a full-fledged art form. Well, and and he it, he was there at the right time, too, because it was around 1915, 1914, right around that period that we start to see true films being made where instead of them being a few minutes here and there like the earliest material, but mm-hmm. where the actual plan is to tell a story and the story becomes important and these films suddenly are go from a few minutes here and there to full-fledged um groundbreaking movies that told stories and were lengthy you know the dw mm-hmm. griffiths of the world were starting right around this period so he mm-hmm. definitely seemed to be there at the right place at the right time with the right vision 
Yes, and also with the energy and the determination to push it forward. Uh, you mentioned, you know, 1915 is really sort of a watershed year, and, uh, you know, that is truly, I think, where films, where the feature film replaced those, you know, earlier 10 minute um, 10 minute presentations. And, and in 1916, Fox made what he advertised as the first million dollar movie, which was The Daughter of the Gods. Now, it might not have been exactly a million dollars that he spent, but knowledgeable estimates say that he spent at least $800,000 on it, which was a phenomenal amount of money to spend on one movie at that time. But that was his sort of... Uh, entrepreneurial energy of let's get where we're going and let's get there as quickly as possible. So he made this spectacular movie in Jamaica and a lot of difficulties involved in making it, but it was a big success. It was um, a sort of a, a Middle Eastern themed fantasy love story, uh, but it had a lot of uh, kind of innovative techniques, a lot of outdoor camera work, which for then was really quite unusual. So he w he was always doing that, and he really, later on in the 20s, he pushed the development of sound. Uh, he also, we were speaking a little earlier about his him as a visionary. The first uh, television broadcast took place in the late 1920s. It was not commercial, it was experimental. But um, he could see this is this technology is going to threaten the movies, and we have to come back with something that will get people out of the home and into the theater. And so he, at that point, he began to push widescreen technology. Um, so he's, you know, he was looking at television, didn't really catch on until the late 40s and then really took off in the 1950s. But he, he saw very clearly that that was going to happen, and he was absolutely correct. Um, he also really came up with the correct answer because widescreen was, in the 1950s, what really brought people out of their homes and back into the theaters. And television in the 50s was in the process of decimating motion picture income. So he's, he just had this really uncanny sense to be able to isolate what were the important aspects of a new development and, and what did it mean for the future. Yeah, well, generally speaking, I think most people agree that if it hadn't been for World War II, television would have started a lot earlier than it ended up doing. But um, yes, mm -hmm. I mean, because the the war definitely put everything on hold. But literally, as you say, almost the minute mm -hmm. that the war was over, everything started up again, and and they went very quickly on the other end there as far as that. But by that time, he was, you know, he was, you know, he died in 1952, so he wasn't really around to see that he turned out to be almost 100% correct with anything that he was right. that he thought about. Yeah, and that really struck me as a sad aspect of the story, you know, because had he just lived a few more years, he would have seen, uh, you know, he was absolutely correct. Um, although that might have been a very bittersweet uh, realization because he was tossed out of the movie industry in 1930, and I, I think that broke his heart. I think he had so much more to give and so much more that he wanted to do, and he was unable to do that. So, uh, you know, he would have been right, but, uh, you know, he, he for 20-some years, he just was out of the game. So who 
did he have dealings or did he know of the other people who were sort of getting started at the same time as him? Would he have run across them as part of his daily life there in New York as far at the beginning and some of the other what we then would what we probably would have called moguls, movie moguls back there at the beginning? Yes. Uh, in fact, he he encountered uh, quite a number of them. Um, he was actually pretty good friends with Marcus Lowe, who started the had the Lowe's Theater chain and then Lowe's Incorporated in the two, early 20s, I believe, took over MGM. So it was a parent company of MGM. Um, he and Fox were they both had the as part of their businesses they had a kind of you know vaudeville theaters and they would sort of exchange acts well you know this act will play at the at the chain of one of them one week and then go over to the other one so they were they were pretty cooperative and i think that they were similar personalities because they both really loved the industry and they both were i think fundamentally decent people and so I know that Fox really admired Marcus Lowe, and I think that was part of his drive and determination when Marcus Lowe, after Marcus Lowe died in 1927, for Fox to take over Lowe's Incorporated. And he did indeed uh, make a successful bid in 1929 for Lowe's Incorporated. Of course, that led to his downfall, but that's the later part of the story. Um, so yes, so he, he was actually friends with Marcus Lowe. And Adolf Zucker, he knew him as well, head of Paramount, which was in its earlier years called Famous Players Lasky. Um, Zucker was not really a friendly guy. You wouldn't really be friends with him. They were rivals. But I think Fox regarded him as really the other person who was his intellectual equal in that business, that those were the true, really uh, true geniuses of the, of the, of the studio system. Then he also knew the Warner brothers did not think particularly highly of them. And he knew Carl Lemley, founder of universal, um, Lemley, he had some run-ins in the very early years when they were both fighting, Thomas Edison's motion picture patents company, which had tried to monopolize the motion picture industry. They were both kind of rivals for dismantling that system. But was he, you know, close friends? Was he golfing buddies with any of these guys? No, he wasn't. Um, it, you know, part of that is he really didn't have close friends um, or he didn't have many close friends and he didn't really have them in the motion picture industry. He was really quite a bit of a loner who stayed very much to his immediate family. But yes, he did, you know, have encounters with, with really all of those people. Did he have, I mean, one of the things you find in reading, especially during this period of time, you know, is that each studio or, or each organization had their own, not only their own companies and, and as you point out the theaters and everything because it was an all-inclusive thing back then um did he have people who he worked with who he discovered who he brought into the industry who ended up doing the the creative side of, of the work for him yes he did um and he had a particularly sharp eye for directors he was not so much inclined to the stars because he really didn't think that the stars were the most creative or the, the most important creative element. He saw the directors and the writers as being the, the crucial figures in 
making a successful motion picture. And he was an early champion of John Ford. He gave John Ford his big break with the Iron Horse in 1924. That was an epic production. John Ford had just been sort of turning out smaller, uh, sort of, you know, routine movies before that. Here he gets a chance, and he delivered really quite spectacularly. That movie was a big hit, but Fox promoted it to the hilt. Um, so he really gave the movie a big build-up, supported it, and helped it become, you know, find its audience and become a really big success. And then he supported Ford through a number of other movies. And Ford was really a good employee, but but Fox had that eye to be able to see, you know, this is a director who really knows what he's doing, who who really is a great artist. And he gave him the facilities and the stories to be able to realize, you know, bring his talent out onto the screen. Uh, another director whose early career he really helped was Frank Borzaghi, who made uh, some wonderful movies for Fox, Seventh Heaven, Street Angel, Lucky Star. All of those have Janet Gaynor and Charles Farrell as a romantic couple, and they're all really, really wonderful movies, um, all big hits. And then Fox brought F.W. Murnau to the United States from Germany to make the movie that is considered by many, you know, one of the greatest, if not the greatest silent film, Sunrise of 1927. So, yes, Fox really gave a number of people, especially directors, a really, really important start in their career. I meant to ask, but I'll I'll ask it now. Um, Mm -hmm. How much of his work or, you know, the films that he made are still in existence? I know a lot of things from that period of time, especially because of age and, you know, all kinds of issues related to film and how it was made at the time. Uh, Is is his output still around to be viewed or, or, or are we in a position where some of it's been lost? I would say most most of it has been lost. Um, it's few and far between. For instance, his biggest Fox's biggest star in the 1910s, uh, between 1915 and 1920, was Theda Barra, okay, a name that is still well known. But in fact, all we have from her are two movies, and of course, her images as a, a vamp. Only one of those movies. Does she play a vamp-like role, which is the very first movie she made? Unfortunately, we have that, which is called A Fool There Was from 1915. But that's all we have. And she made some 40 movies for Fox. And among them, Cleopatra, which was a big, spectacular movie of 1917, one of the most wanted lost films. And she made Salome, another big extravaganza, and a number of other movies that really sound very interesting that are simply lost. Um, so, yeah, a, a lot of it is simply that, you know, it was degraded. But then in 1937, the Fox era movies had been shipped off to a warehouse in Little Ferry, New Jersey, and there was a big fire. And that destroyed many, many of the remaining prints of the the William Fox era movies. So unfortunately, there's not much left from his regime. And I think that's another factor that contributed to his disappearance, his virtual disappearance from history. Yeah, I was about to ask you that if you think, if you thought the fact that there isn't that much there or left 
had a lot to do with why he wasn't, you know, he, he, he isn't as well known as some of the other people from back then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think it's really a significant factor. I think if we had Cleopatra and if we had, uh, he also made a version of uh, uh, Les Miserables in, I believe that was 1918. Then there was a, um, another big hit. It was a small movie that became a big hit, but was pretty significant in his time called Over the Hill. That was 1920. Then there are some John Ford movies from the mid to late 20s that are lost. Um, I think if we had more evidence of the great movies that he made and of the variety of movies that he made, that he would be a much more prominent name. So that's an important factor. I think that combined with the fact that when he was pushed out of his companies in 1930, he pretty much had to be... um, denigrated as a creative force and and as an important figure in film history because when he was pushed out in April 1930, his companies were at the height of their prosperity, those companies being Fox Film, the studio, and the Fox Theater chain. And in the ensuing years, they were reduced to rubble. Fox Theaters went bankrupt in 1932, and by 1935, there was so little left of Fox Film in terms of its achievements. They still, of course, had the studio, but it was just in shambles financially that in 1935, it had to merge with 20th Century Pictures, hence we get 20th Century Fox, so that the regime that pushed Fox out really had to discredit him because why would you push out somebody who was such a great figure and who made these companies so prosperous so that you really couldn't celebrate him because otherwise the question would arise, well, why did you get rid of him and why don't you bring him back so that he can save the companies? We're they a pretty lot. much had to erase him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's yeah, that sounds normal. Unfortunately, although it's interesting, yeah. they kept his name though. It was that that was the interesting part that they actually kept his name in the in the name of the company. Um, yeah, although they debated that, there was serious talk about just erasing that name in 1935, mm-hmm. but they did finally to keep it. Did what were what were some of the things that he was known for as far as the early development? Are there specific things that when people look at the history of film and how it was developed, are there specific things that we can point to Fox and say he was responsible or largely responsible for this? Yeah, that's a great question because there are uh, a number of really significant achievements that uh, he has never gotten full credit for, one of them being the dismantling, the legal dismantling of the Motion Picture Patents Company, which we mentioned a little earlier. That was the attempt headed by Thomas Edison originally to monopolize the motion picture industry. And Edison's position was that He had invented the motion picture camera and therefore the motion picture projector, and he therefore was entitled to run the business to determine who could make movies and what kind of movies they would make and to reap the profits from those movies. And so in 1908, the Motion Picture Patents Company was formed and it licensed only 10 Producers and they were called manufacturers, and they were the only companies that were approved to make motion pictures. 
and they so they started off in production then they moved to takeover distribution and that's where they uh, kind of locked horns with Fox because we mentioned earlier that Fox had gone into distribution. Well, there were, I think, 120 distribution companies in the United States starting off, and they eventually reduced them down to on, only one by taking them over or driving them out of business. And the loan company standing was William Fox's company in New York, and he just he didn't want to sell to them. He didn't want to be he didn't want to lose that part of his business. Uh, so he actually engineered the, he brought about, he went down to Washington, talked to the Justice Department, and from the research I did, it looks pretty clear that was the impetus for the Justice Department filing an antitrust lawsuit against the patents company. And that battle went on for a couple of years. Fox, from the research I did, poured money into that battle. He rounded up people to testify, and he really crucially, he provided his lawyer to guide the government in that case at every single step. And the lawyer apparently was sitting at the table at every one of those hearings at the elbow of the uh, assistant uh, attorney general who was prosecuting the case. So Fox was really instrumental in that um, and he's never really gotten credit for that. And the decision came down that the patents company was an illegal monopoly and had to be dismantled. And that opened up the industry to what became the studio system. So that was a really significant achievement. Um, another one that I think was really very, very important was the development of sound. And, you know, what do we think of when we think of talking pictures, of the first talking picture? We you think, think of, of the jazz singer. Exactly. Okay, Warner Brothers. And we think, okay, that's the first Hollywood picture that has spoken dialogue. Well, that's very true. But what is the sound, what is the system that it uses? It used Vitaphone. And Vitaphone was a record playing along with the film. And that technology was uh, developed with... AT&T's Western Electric Division, and they hated the Warner Brothers, but they had gotten in with the Warner Brothers because the Warners were the only ones who would agree to develop this, but they really didn't like them. They tried to persuade Fox to take over Vitaphone, this sound-on-disc system, and Fox, having been an exhibitor, having been a distributor, said that will never work um, because the films are going to get separated from the discs, and also, once you make the movie, you will you can't edit the movie because otherwise you lose synchronization. The record's not going to match the film. And he was adamant about that. He insisted the only technology that's going to work is sound on film. And he stood firm on that, and he said he had a lot of difficulty, but he finally persuaded Western Electric to adapt the machinery for sound on film technology. Uh, Fox also held a number of uh, uh, private screenings for financiers to try to, because there was a lot of resistance to sound in the industry. They really didn't want to spend the money converting the industry. It, most of the rest of the industry thought, we're doing fine as we are now. Why do we need this? We don't, we don't need it. But Fox, again, that visionary aspect, he saw this is where movies are going. We may as well get it over with and do it as quickly as possible. So he really, really pushed that. He held these 
private screenings for financiers to ensure that the money would be available to the studios and the theaters in order to adapt to sound. And he pushed then the what he what he uh, called movie tone sound on film technology, and that was indeed the technology that the industry adopted in the most of the major studios adopted in 1928 when they did convert to sound, when they did sign the contracts with Western Electric, they adopted the movie tone sound system. And a few years later, Warner Brothers also went to sound on film, and that, of course, was the industry standard. Vitaphone virtually disappeared. So I would really credit Fox as a major figure in the talking pictures revolution and as for a contribution that he did not really get credit for. What about newsreels? Because we obviously know Fox movie tone. It was, was he, is that something, obviously we talked, we mentioned it briefly a, a few minutes ago, but is that something that he had, uh, that we can give him some credit for that as well? I don't think he deserves a major share of credit. There were other newsreels. There was, I think, the um, the Pathé newsreel before. 1919, he started Fox News, which was the silent version of that newsreel. Um, but there were other, uh, you know, competitors. This was not really an original idea with him. But then when he was developing sound, that was actually one of the major ways that he promoted sound was rather than jumping right in and making feature films, he started off using sound in the newsreels. So this was sort of a quick and easy way to demonstrate that this technology really was going to work and to show the variety of what it could do. So he began making those, I believe it was early 1927, and then distributing those. And that was how he used those newsreels as a device to persuade theater owners to go in the direction of sound on film. But then, of course, we come to um, as great as his career seemed to be. Uh, what he's, what you, what we obviously know he's known for more than anything else is the way he lost it all. Because otherwise, as you pointed out more than once, is that we would have known more about him. But unfortunately, yeah. for a variety of reasons, but uh, you know, particularly for financial reasons, uh, right at the time where. Um, Everything seemed to be going well with the economy, with the stock market. He unfortunately got uh, went down with the ship, so to speak, in the same way in many ways. What did he make any? I mean, obviously, that so much of the book is about that part of it. But are there specific things that he made a mistake that he mistakenly did that led to some of the disaster with his uh, with his fortune? Yeah, that's a really interesting question, and that was something that I had to look at and turn over many, many times in my mind as I was going through that, because the way that that story has usually been told is that Fox bought the um, Lowe's Incorporated. He he actually bought a controlling share of stock from the Lowe family, because Marcus Lowe passed away in 1927. His the majority of his stock went to his wife and his sons, and they really didn't want to run the company. So Fox went in and he paid 50 million dollars for 400,000 shares of their stock, and that, while it was not a numerical majority, was a big enough block that it would give him control of that company. He made that deal in 
uh, he was negotiating it in late 28, um, in early 1929. That's when the deal was finalized. And when film history looks at that and, and the subsequent events, it tends to say that was a really stupid thing to do. He overreached himself. He was greedy. He shouldn't have done it. But if you look back at the context of that particular time, of the time frame when he was making that decision, I don't believe it was a foolish decision. It was a risk, that's true, but it was a calculated risk. And, you know, he, 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 who could have anticipated the stock market crash in October 2029? He was not alone in not anticipating that. Um, he was careful to consult the Justice Department and, and say, will you have a problem with this if I acquire this? And he went to the person who, in late 1928, was considered by everybody to be the almost certain appointee as the new Attorney General under the Hoover administration, which was due to be inaugurated in, in March. Um, they inaugurated presidents in March back then rather than January. And so he, and that person whose name was uh, William Donovan, he assured Fox, it'll be okay, I won't have a problem. And that was actually like sort of a routine um, procedure at that point. At that point, you could go to the Justice Department before making the deal and making an acquisition and having them come down on you. You could go and say, what do you think? You know, will this be okay? And he got the assurance there there won't be a problem. So he did cover that base. It's not as if he ignored that. And then he went ahead and, and concluded the deal. Then, you know, there was just a series of bad luck things. William Donovan did not become the attorney general. Um, Somebody else, somebody else did, and Donovan left the Justice Department, and the new regime had no obligation to stand by promises given by um, a predecessor. So, okay, that destabilized the situation there. Then he was in a very serious car accident in uh, July 1929, and he was out of commission for those three months before the stock market crash. So he was not able to, you know, pay attention the way that he would have otherwise and be able to anticipate those conditions. So I, I think bad luck really did play a, a significant role in this. And without that bad luck, things might have gone very differently. Nonetheless, I think he did make some mistakes. I think he failed to realize how powerful the Wall Street establishment was and how it was really not a safe thing to do to not to bring them in on this deal, which he hadn't done. He had um, concluded that deal with like, directly with the family or with the family's representative um, from Lowe's Incorporated. And so bankers hadn't gotten a share of that commission and they were pretty angry about that. And there, and, and he, Fox put himself in opposition to the Wall Street system. Um, financial establishment. He really saw them as not contributing 
anything of value. You know, here's a guy who builds up the Fox Film Corporation and Fox Theaters really from nothing, and who does it himself. And so he looked at Wall Street and really saw them as just predators who come in and sort of, you know, take the gravy off the top when they didn't make any contribution. So as much as possible, he tried to keep them out of deals. And I think had he been more realistic and more willing to compromise, he would have seen you just don't want them as an enemy. He also antagonized AT&T, the parent company of Western Electric, which is manufacturing the sound equipment. And Fox had acquired some sound patents from, sound on film patents from Germany. He'd acquired the North American rights to them. And that made AT&T very nervous. They wanted those patents. And he just would not sell them at any price that AT&T considered reasonable. So he alienated them and they ultimately turned against him. They had loaned him part of the money to buy the, the Lowe's Incorporated shares. And again, that's not an enemy that you want. I think his unwillingness to compromise, his unwillingness to recognize that they might not fairly be entitled to what they wanted at the price that they wanted, but that the larger question is, do you, how powerful are they and do you want them as an enemy? Those are questions that I think he did not look at carefully enough and he just didn't understand that as a lone entrepreneur, he was going to get crushed by those forces if they turned against him. It's funny you mentioned William Donovan because there's a lot of stories from that period that have nothing to do with the movie industry where William Donovan's name floats around. He was oh. he, he actually mm -hmm. touched on a lot of different things back in that period. So it's it is interesting mm -hmm. that uh that uh, to have him in the middle of this as well. And then of I course what else I'm just I'm just curious, what else was he involved in at oh, that time? I shouldn't have said that without giving without oh. examples but as i say i know that uh, you know his his in he was well known i'm sorry hold on a second. i know I'm, I'm i'm i don't want to leave that and i want to make sure i put something in there because okay. mm -hmm. uh, um okay, wait a minute sorry about that oh sorry about that i shouldn't have brought that up okay. without uh oh. <laughs> No, I'm, I'm curious because he was an interesting character, but I just thought I can't really go too much into him, you know, because otherwise I never would have finished the book. So I just really dealt with the part where he intersected with Fox, but he certainly did sound like a character. Oh. And he became significant in World War II, didn't he? With right. The, and that's that's what it was. I'm sorry. I completely, mm -hmm. You know, he's, he's, he's the one that... Uh, um, you know, he was one of the predecessors of, you know, what became the CIA. He was the OS. He was mm -hmm. in with the OSS. That's what it was. I'm sorry, I completely. Okay. Mm -hmm. You know, I, and and don't worry, I I won't leave any of this to to be crazy. But <laughs> okay. Yeah, he was. It was it was very interesting in his period in that period of time that he went a completely different way instead of going to the uh, to the Justice Department. Instead, he. Um, um, went a different way afterwards as, as, as when he was yeah. a U.S. attorney and then yet mm -hmm. uh, uh, 
went completely different and 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 that was it but uh so yeah he's an interesting character all by himself so it's not a surprise completely that he might appear in in your book given that he's appeared in a lot of different places as well right right he's one of those people that just sort of pops up here and there yeah he was an interesting character so then of course this the, the, the stock market crash and and all of these dealings was the last part of the book especially is where you know is the downfall part where just everything that he built up, he he loses, and and as you point out, that that then he ends up getting, you know, with the bribery and things like that. That uh, it just his the rest of his life, he just disappears from view, and and frankly is disgraced. Yes, and discarded by the industry, and that was really, I think, you know, just a heartbreaking part of the story because he had worked so hard to build up these companies and they ran very efficiently, very productively. They did a lot of great work and pioneered a lot of important developments in the industry. And then Fox is just tossed out and they are just run into the ground. Um, And sad was that during those years of 1930 to 1935, Fox kept saying, I'll help you. I'll I'll help you save these companies. And his successor said, go away. You know, mind your own business. You know, this is not, we don't need you. And they just went to ruin. And it just must have been heartbreaking because he loved these companies as if they were his children. And to see them just sort of brutally beaten like this and, um, you know, just torn apart and reduced to nothing. His 25 years in the industry, you know, just wrecked in, in a handful of years by greedy, incompetent people who simply didn't care. I think that really drove him around the bend. And I think that is what led him to that, you know, severe moral compromise of bribing the judge. I think he really was not himself when he did that. I think he was just consumed by bitterness and despair, and that's why he did it. And then he got caught, and he confessed, and he went to prison. So he he paid the price. So... It, it was, it, you know, in in many ways, it's a story that we've seen with other people that the ups and downs, and then in this particular case, there is no real redemption, unfortunately, because by the time, by as you point out, I mean, it, it, he really hits rock bottom if he goes and when he goes to prison. So it was just, uh, you know, all the possibilities of what could have been in many ways is is lost um, because of all this. But uh, it's unbelievable story as far as. Uh, what like we said before that that just isn't really well known. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it, it's certainly a very dramatic story. You have somebody who starts with nothing, goes to the very top, and then falls off that pinnacle. And I, I think there was a sort of redemption at the end, in that when he came out of prison, in he was at Lewisburg Federal Penitentiary from 1942, late 1942 to the spring of 43. And when he came out, I think he was somewhat resigned to what had happened to him. And he went back. He went back to his family. He was good to his family. His family adored him. And he was always very responsible to the family. He took care of everybody. 
and he still had a motion picture camera company, the Mitchell Camera Company, based in Glendale, California, and he would come out a couple of months for every year and and spend time there, and people who worked there said he really was very interested in the work, and he asked a lot of questions, and they thought he was a great boss. So I think he he adjusted and adapted, but certainly... I think there was still a tremendous amount of sadness and a tremendous amount of unhappiness at what he had lost and really about the mistakes that he had made in his own life, the mistakes that he himself had made. So a little bit of redemption, but not a lot. So obviously, as as we've talked about, this, speaking of, you know, long period of, of with something, this book has taken a long part of a large part of your career recently. So do you have other plans in mind or are you still, or you're not really ready to start on anything that's that, that would be as involved as this book? No, actually I am very eager to get involved in another project and I have a few ideas that I am working on developing. Uh, I would really love to do another in-depth book. I would say that, you know, for me, there's really nothing as exciting as plunging into a really great story and finding out what actually happened and finding out all the places where you think you know what it was and then you find out that, no, you're wrong. Because the truth is always much more interesting than one's preconceptions, I think. So I would, I'm very eager to plunge into another book. Well, that's great to hear. As I say, as, as as I mentioned to you before we even started recording, there are some really great, really meaty books about early Hollywood, and yours, I think, really goes right in with them as far as the amount of detail and the amount of work you did. And, and the story is just, I think, uh, fascinating, and I hope that uh, many people who haven't heard of the book yet or haven't reached out for it will take the time because I think it's worth the time and the work the, to show exactly uh, – as we said, an un, in many ways, an unsung hero of early Hollywood, and and uh, someone that frankly deserves more to be known more than just for that little t- tail end of the of the name of a movie studio. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate those kind words. Well, thank you for joining me, and I really enjoyed this conversation, and 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 I really appreciate uh, you taking the time to talk with me. Oh, well, thank you very much, Joel. It's really been a pleasure to talk with you. You are so knowledgeable that it's um, just been a lot of fun talking to you. Thanks a lot. My thanks to Vanda for her time. I hope you seek out her book for its wonderful historical study of an important time in film. This is Joel Cherney, and I will be back soon with more New Books in Film. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.